pastor here at the church. My name is Stephen, um, and I'm up here today because, as many of you know, we're preparing to head out of the country in a couple weeks uh, to go do some ministry overseas, and I asked the, the pastoral staff, I said, you know, I really, I need to preach. Like, it, it's just been a while. I need to do this. This is something that I love to do and enjoy so much, and it's kind of like I need to feel like I've got my legs under me, so to speak. So I'm thankful you're here. We have a lot to talk about today. So uh, that being said, if you can turn in your Bibles or on your phone or just listen, uh, we're going to Genesis chapter 35, and we're only going to do the first seven verses. I don't have the ability to do a whole chapter, so we're going to work through the first seven, and I'll be reading that while you are flipping to it. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away your foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone." So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the Terebeth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror, fell, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, in the land of Cana, and he and the people with him and there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Let's take a moment to pray about our scriptures. Lord, we're thankful for the written word that you have given us. We're thankful that you have blessed us to be able to draw close to you and fill us with the spirit to be able to open up your word and proclaim it with the great confidence that you are the one true God. Lord, we love you and pray that you bless this time that we have together in Christ's name. Amen. So I always like to give your a learning point and the question right at the beginning. I want you to know where I'm going. I don't want you to sit here wondering the whole time, what is this guy thinking about? Where is he going? So what, I'm, what I want you to learn today is I want you to be able to understand Jacob's journey, where he was and where he will end up after we're done today, basically at, at verse 6 in chapter 35. And the question I'm going to put out that I'm going to revisit later is where do you dwell? Okay, so if you'd like to take notes, that's your learning point, understanding Jacob's journey, and where do you dwell? So let's, let's hop right into it. Jacob, or God said to Jacob, we can stop there. There's things we have to talk about right there. I kind of want to set the backdrop for you a little bit. Uh, does anyone remember where Jacob's at right now? By the way, you can answer, I don't care. Shechem. He's in Shechem. Um, I don't know if you know much about Shechem. I love Shechem. That is one of my favorite places. I got to spend some time there. Modern day uh, word for Shechem is Nablus. Uh, it is in Palestine. It is in the West Bank of Israel. It's about an hour and a half from uh, where we lived at in Nazareth. And it's, it's just one of those cities that I, I get there and everything about it should be uncomfortable. It's loud. There's far too many people there, and it's just everything's touching each other, and there's a friction all day long, it's just a buzz. But I love Shechem. I mean, whenever we were going to go, I was always so excited. 
And the last time I was there, it was, uh, it was really funny. It was Ramadan. So we're coming up on Ramadan. For those of you that, that might not know, that's uh, the month where uh, the Muslims believe that Muhammad received the Quran, the instruction from God. And so during Ramadan, entire daylight to morning to evening, uh, Muslims fast. They don't eat, they don't drink. And so that lasts 30 days. So the last time I was there several years ago, it was during Ramadan. And the guy I went with, God bless him, I felt bad that I didn't tell him this, but at the same time, kind of like to see how things are going to unfold sometimes. All he talked about was going to KFC. Because in Palestine, there's KFC. Do you know why there's not a KFC? Well, there is now, but in the Jewish areas, do you know why there's not a KFC? How are you going to fry that chicken in that batter? That's wheat and egg touching each other in Jewish law. No bueno, that's not working. So, we had not had fried chicken in years. And by the way, I have found fried chicken is the ultimate comfort food. When people used to ask me, what do you miss about the U.S.? I said, fried chicken and freedom. And that's, that's what I miss. And I meant it too. And so all day he's talking, I can't wait till we get there. We're going to go to KFC. It's going to be the best. We're going to go. And of course we get there. It's closed. It's Ramadan. And he's like, ah, oh, I can't believe I forgot this. I'm like, man, honestly, I wasn't going to tell you, but... You should have known this was coming. It's, it's, but I felt bad for the guy because really KFC is a big deal uh, there. Uh, there's one in Nazareth now, so he's, he's gotten his fix since then. For the first three months that KFC was open, you could not get in the door under an hour. Outside the door, and you waited, and you were happy to do it. It's like duck donuts. You were thankful for the opportunity to wait in this line to get to go and have this fried chicken. And anyway, so we're, we're in Shechem. And we went to the, the ruins area, like the old, what would have been the Canaanite stronghold. Because it's important to remember, this is a Canaanite community, okay? Jacob should have never been near a Canaanite community. Um, we get there, and we're in the, the old town, which is just scattered ruins. And we're just walking through, and we're praying. You know, we don't know what the Lord's going to do. We just felt like we were supposed to be there that day and pray, and we were. And from around the, you could kind of watch it as it was happening. There was a man. You could just see the top of his head coming around the wall all the way to the entrance point. And this man came in and walked right up to my friend and I. And he goes, I'm here to see you. I'm like, what a coincidence. I'm here to see you too. Uh, he goes, I don't know why I'm supposed to be here. But I had a dream last night that I was supposed to come and meet people here this morning. He said, if you see that apartment building right there, I live just there, and I have never seen anyone in these ruins all of my days. No one comes to where you're standing. But in my dream, I knew I was supposed to come and meet someone here today in this spot. That's pretty remarkable. So we had a great conversation. We got to share our faith with him for several hours, and he shared with us. And, and you know, it's just, so Shechem is, is it's special for me. So I'm really excited to get to kind of break this scripture open for you because, again, it's an area where Jacob was not supposed to be, okay? And the evidence is in the first four words of chapter 31. God said to Jacob, there's a huge problem here, right? Right? Y'all are shaking your heads. Y'all are afraid I'm going to call on you. I know what's going on. His name's not Jacob anymore. Remember two chapters ago, it was turned to Israel. So why is God calling him Jacob? Well, that goes back to last week. For those of you who were here last week and got to hear Pastor Stewart unpack Genesis 34, what we see is Jacob has not started acting like Israel. 
Because names mean something. You know, our culture, we don't reflect that. You all likely, if anyone didn't do this, please raise your hand. Any of y'all name your kid like five days after they were born? No. Yes, I got one. Thank, finally, I got one. How many days? Figuring it out. Yeah, it's a big deal to name your kids, right? Because you your name means something. Like, so, uh, my son is named after my great aunt and uncle. It's not Bear. It's Matthias. Matthias is actually his first name. Y'all thought my great aunt and uncle was named Bear, didn't you? <laughs> that would be awesome, but no. Uh, his first name's Matthias, and we really thought on that. And then he kind of was born super early, and I kind of had to pull the trigger on that without Savannah because she was knocked out and bleeding out. So, we, I had to just kind of go, okay, Matthias, Bear, Arrington. That's a great name. Go with that. And, but names mean something, and that name did mean something. And so when God is calling out to Jacob and calling him Jacob and not Israel after he just named him Israel a few chapters ago, that's God saying something. Jacob is not yet acting like a patriarch. He's not yet acting like the man that's going to see the nations fathered. He's not being even the family man that God has called him to be. He is still very much acting like Jacob, acting like the heel grabber, the one set behind. Just last week, Pastor Stewart unpacked the horrific act in chapter 34, the defilement of one of Jacob's daughters. And if you weren't here, go back and read that, because especially if you've ever loved any human being in your entire life, you can read this and realize Jacob dropped the ball. That was his daughter. And who had to defend his daughter? His sons. That's messed up. That is very much a Jacob, not a called man Israel. And so this is no small thing. I could stop with these four words and preach the next however long on just those four words. Because when God has to call you by something you were previously known as, not what he has ordained you to be, boy, that, that should make you step back and take pause. Because obviously, you're not being who you're supposed to be. And so, um, Jacob, I hope, we don't know, I hope that was shocking for him as he heard God call out, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Up to Bethel. So, obviously, arise, get up, go live in Bethel. What's interesting about Bethel is it's 31 miles southeast of Shechem. So at this point, Jacob's traveled a long ways. He's, he has really traveled thousands of miles between where he was born, where he would go up to his family uh, and be married and travel back down. And he's supposed to be traveling back to Bethel. He knows that. He's made a promise to God. It's, uh, I think, chapter 28. He knows where he's supposed to be, but he gets within 31 miles and stops. That's, isn't that interesting? Not the number 31, but just that he got so close. If you're walking, that's two days walk, and he stops. But to go up to Bethel is not in north-south terms, but rather in elevation terms. There's a thousand-foot elevation difference between Shechem and Bethel. And we see this used throughout Scripture a lot, that when God says go up, it doesn't necessarily mean a north-south. Like when I think, well, I'm going to go up north. Do y'all say that? Do any of y'all say that? Yeah, I go up north and I go down south. 
you know, I mean, that's just how it goes. I go out west. I don't go east. There's nothing, there's nothing out there but water. I don't need to go east anymore uh, unless I'm going to keep going east. It depends on how far. But so to go up has been used. Jesus talks about going up to Jerusalem from Nazareth. Again, elevation difference. And what we see several times throughout Scripture when God uses this term, go up, it's referring to a high physical location, an elevation to where God met man. Okay, going up to Jerusalem, we know that's where Solomon's temple was. We know that's where God was physically present with the people there. We know where the Holy of Holies is. This is where it was. So from Nazareth to Jerusalem, up. Same thing with Bethel from Shechem. What's interesting, though, is we've seen this with Jacob before, having to see a ladder-type elevation change. Remember? Jacob's ladder. He's had a dream. So you can really think of this in terms of Jacob making a 31-mile journey up, almost as if a ladder, to the place that's known as the house of God. And that's just, that's striking because this is, it's so much there. And then God instructs Jacob to make an altar. Well, to dwell there and remain an altar, to um, make an altar. It's, it's interesting, dwell there. Do y'all remember what he did when he went to Shechem? He set up a camp tent. Set up a tent. A tent is not a permanent dwelling. Matter of fact, if you go back, you'll notice that the word is different. The word that is used there is tent. The word that is God is instructing here is to dwell. Any of y'all ever dwelled in a tent? I'm just curious if I have any like permanent long-term tent dwellers in here. What's the longest anyone's ever stayed in a tent? Anybody more than three weeks? Steve's been, how many weeks? Why? <laughs> For what? Oh, army, in the military, okay. <laughs> what happened in your life? You've just been hanging out in a tent for two months. Man, you've really gone up the ladder right now. Oh, thank you. Worried a little bit there for a second. I had a buddy who uh, decided to go live homeless one time. Buddy's a loose term. I had a guy I knew who uh, went to live homeless in D.C. for a while. He wanted to go and just kind of love on that community, and he did that for three months. Um, no, closer to two months. Anyway, big difference in dwelling in a tent, living in a tent, versus living in a home. A tent, honestly, you're not supposed to live in a tent. I mean, people, you can. I have tried countless times to talk my wife into let's buy 100 acres, a couple yurts, a couple tents, and a porta potty and just live there. And I think that's very reasonable. Like, I think we could really live a good life like that. I don't think she's in. I'm, I've been, I'm still working on it. It's only been 10 years since I first proposed that. I feel like we're nicking away. But until then, it's just interesting to note, Jacob knew he was to go and dwell at Bethel but chose to set a temporary residence right outside a very wicked city, only 31 miles from where he had made a vow back in 28, chapter 28, to return to. And so he goes, and God instructs, make an altar. Now, this is really important because God doesn't instruct the patriarchs to make altars. And I know what you're thinking, well, but they did. That's true, they did. But this is the only time where God instructs a patriarch to make an altar and I can't help but start wondering why. And that's because an altar has already been established here. Again, if you go back to when 
Esau was pursuing Jacob, you realize this is the place where God came to him in a dream or a vision or, or in his presence and said, I am the God who's going to protect you. And he sets up an altar and dumps oil on it and anoints what is then Luz to be the town of Bethel, which means house of God. And so to go back and make an altar is to go back and reconstruct the altar that is already there. This is not a brand new thing. He's already done this once. And this is where it, it really kind of starts to, to break open who Jacob is finally starting to turn into. Because if you look here in verse 2, So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Finally, Jacob is being the father that he is supposed to be and leading his family. Previous chapter, his daughter is defiled. He does nothing. And so many times, go back further uh, chapters, his wife steals foreign idols from her father. And what does he do? Nothing. Finally, we are seeing Jacob start to turn into the man God called him to be, to fulfill the name Israel and be this man. And he finally instructs his family to give me the household gods. And we're going to purify ourselves. Depending on what version you have, mine says put away, and that that is an accurate way of reading that from the Hebrew, to put away the foreign gods and to turn aside. That implies much more than just a place of ownership, okay? It doesn't mean it's just like we've got it. You know, let's just chuck it out. I had to make sure the top was on it. Make sure we just chuck it out. No, to put it away means you're very aware of this possession, and what it means to you. And it is now time to put it out. To get rid of it. Because I, I've read through certain, certain commentaries that are like, well, maybe Jacob didn't know they were there. Jacob knew they were there. It's very clear through scripture. Jacob knows they're there. For starters, he says to his family, put them away. And so this isn't just a closeted thing. Do y'all just put stuff in your closets? Anybody in here do that? I can't stand it when people do that. Just a heads up. Sorry. I just, I, I, throw it away. Like, you've got it. Just throw it away. Don't just... i got to be careful. I'm going to get in trouble. It drives me nuts of people that will take something that they don't really want. And you're like, ah, I'm going to just put it here. Throw it away or wear it or do something with it. Uh, now I'm just ranting about your, your, phone, your home life. And I don't mean to do that. But it is something deep here. Because these these false idols have been in Jacob's family's possession and instead of getting rid of them it is now coming to a place where Jacob is having to call the family out and it's time to put them away and to purify yourselves and so that term put it away is going to be to discard and we're going to move into that in just a second but to purify yourselves and change your clothes this is some foreshadowing Because the Mosaic law hasn't come yet, right? So we know in the Mosaic law, God gives stipulations on what it is to go through a purification rite. Well, that hasn't happened yet. We're still quite a ways off from that. And so God is, as instructed, given to Jacob, this is how you are going to put away what is evil and take on what is pure. And you're going to do that by physically washing yourselves and putting on clean clothes. 
And, and I, I shared with the earlier service, I don't know about y'all, but I've, I've got this, this thing. If, if I've been sick and I'm tired of being sick and I think I cannot be sick anymore, I get up and I take a shower and I get dressed because it makes me feel like I'm about to overcome this thing. Now, does it work all the time? Nope. But I try. And that's kind of what we're starting to see is Jacob saying, okay, strip down the sickness. Strip down the wickedness. It's time to get rid of these things. And it is time to purify ourselves before a holy God and to change our clothes. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so there I may make an altar to the God who answers me in my day of distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Do y'all remember the day of distress for Jacob that he's referring to here? He's fleeing Esau. If you go back to Genesis, I believe it's 27, Esau is going to kill Jacob. And you know what? I kind of get it. You know, this guy's stolen his birthright, which don't get me wrong, Esau's got his issues in this too. You know, something y'all might not have caught that I just kind of, I read that and I'm like, it's funny, nothing's changed. If you, in that same chapter, Esau realizes that it makes his dad mad if he marries a Canaanite woman. So what does he do? Marries a Canaanite woman. And I look at that and I'm like, nothing's changed. Like, that's just, it tickles me a little bit. But we see that after Jacob fled to Bethel is where he has an encounter with God. And God says, I'm going to protect you. That's a big deal. Esau's pretty ticked at this point, right? And we know that just a couple chapters ago, there was this great meeting of Jacob and Esau after it had been so many years. And if you remember, Jacob is doing what Jacob does, which is be very afraid, not trusting in the Lord. And you know what? I get it. If I was staring down the barrel of another army of my brother that I've recently made pretty mad by stealing everything that was his, I think I'd be a little nervous too. But there is this reminder in here that Jacob is starting to kind of give out that let me go and make an altar to the God who promised to protect me and has protected me through so much, through dealing with Laban, through dealing with Esau, through dealing with what just happened in chapter 34. Do y'all remember what Jacob's sons just did in chapter 34? They just killed all the guys in Shechem, right? So that's kind of something to maybe be a little bit worried about as well. But Jacob here is finally getting it, right? Do you ever have those moments with friends, family, children, where you see them just get it? Y'all ever, anybody ever? I, I see it with my kids a lot. Like, um, I'm really bad about instructions. I'm not good with instructions because if I say, okay, take that bottle and put it there, and you say to me, I don't understand, I say, okay, take that bottle and put it there. And you'll say to me, I don't get it. I'm like, oh, it's real simple. Take this bottle and put it there. And Savannah's like, you can't just say it over and over again. I say, well, I disagree. And then she says, but you can't. And then you know what I say? I disagree because I'm just, this is my only ability. I'm not very good at getting you to get it. For our teachers in the room and our nurses and our doctors, you, you have an ability to help people understand. I have the ability to tell you what I'm thinking and expect you to do it. And my poor children suffer that sometimes to, to which I have to be like, okay, let's get mom. Like mom can help me get you to get it. But Jacob now, it's coming together. He is getting what God has been trying to show him for half of his life at this point. 
that it is time to return to Bethel. See, if you again go back, you got to go back and read to kind of get where we're at right now. Jacob, when he met God after he was fleeing Esau, made a promise of, Lord, if you protect me and all these things, I will return to my father's land. I will come back here. That's why he set up the stone and said, house of God, the dwelling of God. I'm coming back here. That's why it's anointed. And finally, it's clicking that he's coming back. And so the family responds to Jacob and they gives them their false gods and idols. They're not the same thing, but I'm going to use them in a, in a similar way right now. And they, they give them and the rings that were in their ears. Now, that's important. Uh, when I read that, my mind defaults into Exodus when they're building the, the golden calf or they pull their earrings and all the gold. Again, that hasn't happened yet. The way this is, is read, it's very typical during this time, especially in the Canaanite religion. If you ever find yourself really bored or really just into history, read about the Canaanite religion. It's fascinating. They were really genius how they, they ran their society. Uh, it's just very interesting. And militarily, where they put their strongholds at was brilliant, which was why Joshua was so afraid. Well, not really Joshua. The, the spies with Joshua were so afraid because the Canaanites put themselves strategically in such good places. But the rings that were in the ear is likely an adornment that people would place on these statues, on these figurines. It's not uncommon that you would put like gold on them, earrings on them, flowers on them, and you would adorn the gods. So it's important because what God's telling us here, they didn't just give up the idol. They gave up the wealth with the idol. That's a big deal, right? I mean, I might be willing to give up something, but am I willing to give up what's valuable with it? Well, we cry. that's a different sermon for a different day, but I'll get y'all next time on that. And he, it says he buried them or hid them underneath the terebinth tree, which was near Shechem. I didn't like that wording when I first read it. I had to do some digging. Like, why would you just hide it? If it's something that you know is wicked that God's telling you to get away, why wouldn't you destroy it? Right? If I'm trying to get rid of something in my house that I know I hate, I'm not going to put it in the closet for all of you that like to put things in closets. I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to destroy it. And so in doing some digging, a better word for that would be to dump it. And so that, that kind of works a little bit better. It's dumped as trash was dumped. Because when it says hide too, you have to understand, there's no take a shovel and dig a hole and bury anything in. Not in Shechem. That's a bunch of rocks. I can tell you from experience that is a bunch of rocks. So they would have dumped the idols and then taken just debris, stone, anything, and heaped on top of to actually physically discard for rot is what that would really uh, mean. And, and that, that's, again, we're starting to see a big movement in Jacob's life. And so they journeyed, and a terror of God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that the sons of Jacob, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. That's because the sons of Jacob just killed a bunch of people five minutes ago, and Jacob is absolutely terrified. But God allows this spirit of fear 
to fall around the surrounding cities so that they did not pursue to kill Jacob and his family. And they came to Luz, which is Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and he and the people who were with him. And there he built the, the altar and called the place Bethel because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, we have got to, we've got to hit a couple really important things as we start to circle back to the original question of where do you dwell? He builds the altar, and he's going to rename the place Bethel. But I want to go out of order and skip over that and point out something really interesting. If you look in your Bibles, because there God had revealed himself to him. This is really important. Um, if you get a Hebrew interlinear Bible, you'll see a lot more how language is used. Now, we have to polish language whenever you're translating it, right? I mean, you know that. It's never a pure translation. If it is, it would make zero sense to you. But a better way of reading that, the way the Hebrew reads that, is that that's a plural verb right there. And it actually translates, they had revealed. And that's a nod to a Trinitarian God. Now, plural is just more than one. So some people are, well, it's just two. You know what? How about we recognize that God from the beginning shows the, how he is a Trinitarian God, and we can easily see that there. That is really important because there's a lot of people that will argue language, and it is very clear that is improper Hebrew to use a they there. And if you have a study Bible and you look at the bottom, you're probably going to see a note. And in that note, it's going to say, that the Samaritan Septuagint and several others, I can't remember which ones now, have, they don't have the they. But the oldest Hebrew text that we have very much has the they in it. It looks like an upside down J backwards with a dot if you have a Hebrew note there. And so we see this reveal of God to Jacob in the form of they, which is massive. But now I want to kind of bring this thing in a little bit. We've gone through a lot. I've given you a lot of information. We need to look at this word. And he called the place the word El Bethel. Now, if you remember, he's already named it. Several chapters ago, he has an encounter with God. He names it House of God. Anybody other than Stuart and Andy and me and whoever in here that might be an ordained pastor want to take a stab at what El Bethel means? The God of the house of God. El just means God. And you have to understand what's happening. Jacob is now fully getting ready to embrace the name Israel. And not only is he in this place that he had an encounter with God, met God, knew God, set up an altar, called this the house of God, he is now recognizing the name of this place is going to be El Bethel, God of the house of of God. And this is where it hits home with us this morning. A large percentage of us in here, you've probably been Christian most of your life, a lot of your life. You've certainly been in a church at some point in your life. You're familiar with what the house of God is. You've probably had an encounter with God. You may have given your life, said, I want to be a Christian, I want to be faithful. And that may have been some years ago, may have been very recently. But my point is, you're familiar with where the house of God is. You're familiar with what the house of God is. Not just where it is, but what it is. But, have you journeyed the way Jacob has journeyed? Jacob knew where the house of God was the whole time. He set up the altar there. He knew he was supposed to return. He vowed to return. 
got within 31 miles and sat down. I wonder, I wonder how many of us are truly, oh, we're a Christian. I love the Lord very much. Read my Bible, pray to Jesus. But somewhere along the way, even though you still love the Lord, you sat down when you were supposed to draw near to God. Because, see, we do this, right? For those of you that are married, you've probably experienced the most foolish bit of nonsense that's ever existed, which is getting married and sharing one blanket. That's ridiculous. Don't do that. You want good marriage advice? Buy two blankets. Day one, two blankets. But when you're married, you're in this beautiful state of love. You crawl in bed. She puts her cold feet against your warm calves, digs them in, and you lay there praying to God. She falls asleep quick because you can't stand much more of it. But you love being close, right? Y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about? I need to see some movies. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? You've done this. You've experienced this. You've had some coldness hit you at some point that wasn't your appendage. Like, that's how we do it. It's because we love our spouse, right? How many years does it take before you realize this is a big bed and I can afford a second blanket? <laughs> Seriously, I want you to think. Maybe you haven't realized it yet. I'm changing your life right now. My point is, in time, we tend to grow away, not in love. I love my wife more now than I did almost 11 years ago when we got married because I understand her more now. I did not get her 11 years ago. She was pretty. And now she's beautiful and I understand her. So it's so much more that I get to understand what is going on because before it was just, well, I like you a lot. You're beautiful. Seems like a win for me. So... (laughs) What do you think? You know? (laughs) But we see a lot of times that our love doesn't necessarily get stale or distance, but our our bodies tend to. I love my wife just as much now as I, more now than I ever have, but we got two blankets on a queen bed. You kiss each other. I love you. We pray. Good luck. Roll over. (laughs) I'll race you to the gate of who can get to sleep first. You know what I mean? The problem is, if we're honest, if we're truly honest, we tend to treat God this way. Right out of the gate, boy, you're right there close to God. I can't get enough. You're flipping through your Bible so fast. You're reading. I'm hungry. I want to know this God who saved me, loved me, sacrificed himself so that I may know him. And in time, the Lord gets his own blanket. You take your own, and you start to take leave of the connectedness between you and God. That doesn't mean you love him less. It doesn't mean that you're less of a Christian. What it means is we take liberties in our own life to distance ourselves from God because you know what? Just like with your spouse, the closer you are to God and your spouse, the more you know what they do for you and the more you know the expectation that's upon you. And the expectation of Christ is to go. It's to serve. It's to love and give all. And if we're honest, we like the new relationship with God. We like year one. Year 10 gets to be uncomfortable. So what I'm asking you today, where do you dwell with the Lord? Are you in just the house of God, emotionally and spiritually? Are you in 
God's house, the house of God. Do you understand the massive, important difference in just being the house of God, being God, the house of God? Do you understand how big it is for Jacob to step back and go, this isn't just the house of God. God is God of the house of God. Anyone can drive past this church and go, church. People tell me God's there. But how much greater is it a thing for people to step and say, I can feel the presence of God here because I can see in the believers who God truly is through his word. And here's where the rubber meets the road. Many of us love the Lord, but we journey 31 miles away from where he called us. And we sit down and say, you know what, God, this is close enough. This is convenient. I have trade here. I've got a good job here. There's water here. I'm going to dig a really nice well. This is as close to God as he needs me to be. And this is as close to God as I want to be. Rather than going, I am called to the Lord. That is the Lord over the house of God. So Pastor Andy's going to come up. And we're going to do a closing song. Uh, I'm going to come down front. Pastor Stewart is going to come down front. And if you would like to come up and pray with us, if you would like to come and talk to us about what it means to know who Christ is, please come up. If you just want to come and stand and pray to yourself, you feel free to do this. But you need to recognize one thing before you leave here today. I am not asking you if you know Christ. I am asking you if you have submitted to the Lordship of Christ and placed yourself in a position of God, use me. It is not enough that I know who you are, but rather to serve you. So if you'd stand, we're going to do our closing song.